I'm Kathy Joller. And I'm Dan Schifrin. And this is The Space Between, Dispatches from the Contemporary Jewish Museum. The Space Between refers to the places between ideas where so much interesting culture happens, and Alicia Jo Rabins is our guest today. Alicia Jo has an MFA in poetry and a master's in Jewish women's studies, but if we were a degree-granting podcast, we'd certainly award her a PhD of (laughs) in-between. She's a poet, composer, classically trained musician, fiddler for the folk punk group Gollum, and the creator of Girls in Trouble, which is an art pop cycle about women in the Bible. The latest album of this project, called Half You, Half Me, was released this year. She's traveled the world as a musical ambassador for the State Department and taught Torah as well as yoga as an educator. And as part of Girls in Trouble, she was commissioned by the Contemporary Jewish Museum to write a song about Hagar, whose story is the subject of an installation here at the museum. The arrow leaves the bow And goes off on its own And when the arrow's gone The bow remains alone So, welcome, Alicia Joe. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, so, like so many interviews do, we're going to kind of start with your upbringing. It's a little bit more selfish this time, because actually I grew up in a suburb of Baltimore as well. Oh. Columbia, Maryland. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and I went to school in Towson. Um, so, uh, yeah, when I've heard you describe your upbringing, I was just like, yes. Like, <laughs> you get it. <laughs> you put to words exactly what my experience was. Um, I heard you describe your upbringing as kind of religiously Jewish, but not cultural. Yeah, culturally Protestant, I would say. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Usually it's the opposite, and that dichotomy is at the heart of so much uh, conversation about Jewish life, mm-hmm. you know, uh, today. So could you speak a little bit more about that? Like, what does that mean? Yeah, well, my parents... Um, both grew up in conservative Jewish homes in Hollywood, Florida, and landed in Baltimore when I was about four months old because um, my dad got a job at Hopkins. Um, and so they bought a house, a little house in Towson, and I went to Towson Presbyterian Nursery School. <laughs> um, and there were a few Jewish kids in the public schools that I went to, but very few. And at the same time, my mom came into kindergarten and made latkes, and it wasn't... Um, it wasn't out of a um, an aversion to Judaism, but I think it was. I think it's influenced me a lot because they both identified strongly as being Jewish, but wanted very much to be involved in the greater world. And so I, I grew up going to shul across, which we call the temple, um, across the city in Pikesville, and I got bat mitzvah. It was a huge congregation. So there was like a double bat mitzvah with someone I had never even met before. <laughs> and my Devar Torah was a kind of fill in the blank. Um, my Torah portion is blank. This is meaningful to me because blank. <laughs> when I read this, I blank. Um, and, but, I, but I was very moved by the sense of ritual and sanctity that I felt in the space and in some of the practices. Um, even though I got kind of a, I mean, despite the, Having been a Hebrew school teacher now, I have a lot of compassion for my my teachers and what they were struggling with. But I think you know we got a pretty diluted um, D I L U T E D version of of um, of what ritual is. But I really responded to it, and um, so I chose to stay and be confirmed. And at the same time, I would kind of make up my own religious, rich, quasi religious rituals involving crystals or, you know, the ocean or whatever it was that was kind of trees. Um, 
which I later realized was because I, I had these, you know, kind of spiritual or whatever you want to call it, um, questions and um, perceptions and yearnings and curiosities. And I got like a taste of it for my Jewish education, but that wasn't really the focus because um, it was a weird thing because I was growing up in this culturally Protestant place, but the Judaism that we were given was almost more cultural than religious in a way. It was kind of a cultural version of religious Judaism. Like the God thing was a little bit intimidating. <laughs> we didn't go too deep into that. And of course, like, you know, religious rules. It was a reformed congregation, so religious rules were kind of there to be at once honored and sort of ignored, but not necessarily like deeply grappled with, you know. So, so that was my background, which kind of um, left me both really feeling a deep connection to my Judaism, I think partially because I was one of the only Jewish kids around. And um, I think if I had grown up in a culturally Jewish area, I probably would have directed a lot of my adolescent rebellion at Judaism. <laughs> but because Judaism was actually the thing that was different from most of my surroundings, I actually identified it as something that was somehow rebellious in itself, you know. Um, and then when I got to college, I accidentally stumbled upon this Jewish community at Barnard um, and kind of was introduced to Torah study in a kind of deep and serious way. And it was like the light just kind of went on. I was like, this is what I was trying to invent myself <laughs> and having, you know, moderate success with my crystals in the ocean and whatever purifying ceremonies I was coming up with. But like, this is not something I'm making up. This is something that people have been collaborating on for, you know, two or 3,000 years. And it just felt, like, very clear to me that I needed to go and immerse myself in that. That was the beginning of my kind of deeper Jewish education. Yeah, and your work with uh, Barn Bat Mitzvah students, I mean, how do you, um, like, do you reflect on your experience growing up and what you didn't have um, intellectually, and how does that change what you offer them as a teacher? I'm afraid sometimes when I talk about this that I sound like I feel deprived, which is not the case. <laughs> I, I mean, I had an incredible, all all of the um, the depth and beauty and complexity and kind of soul engagement that didn't happen with Judaism, I was extremely blessed because it was happening with art in my life. So I had an incredible um, musical background um, and training playing classical violin and then being trained as a composer at a young age I went to this music camp called the Walden School for Young Composers and then I'm I'm a poet and so I started kind of getting serious about that in high school and I had a wonderful visual art teacher at this public school that I went to so I think um I didn't I think that one of the things that happened for me was that I I had a, a tremendous spiritual education it was just through art and so one of the, the aha moments for me in, start trying, in beginning to study Torah was realizing that those two things could be combined and that, that feeling of absolute kind of engagement that I had felt with art um, and the feeling of spiritual hunger that I had felt um, could at, didn't have to be answered separately, but that they could be involved with one another. Um, so I think... It, rather than having been deprived of anything, it was more um, like a lack of, of connection or something. And the kids that I work with, um, like one of my main goals is to just show them that Torah is 
one way to deeply explore these questions. And Torah study might is not everyone's way. You know, some people might be sports. I mean, I don't want to force them to have my path either. But um, but just making that that possibility clear is one of my main goals. It seems that you're also in this interesting place um, between, uh, one could say, biblical commentary and you know, popular music or um, contemporary music. Um, and I'm curious whether that is a space that um, you are surprised that you are inhabiting or in retrospect, looking at your interests and your background, whether this is, this is the place where you were always meant to be. I would say totally both. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm definitely the religious freak in my family, even though I'm not terribly observant anymore. Um, so it's still on some level surprising to me that because I didn't start studying Torah until I was 21, the fact that I now think of the world largely in those terms, or that's one layer of how I think of the world is still, I can rewind my brain very consciously to a place where I didn't even know these concepts existed. Um, so I, you know, I see that fork very clearly in my, in my life and it didn't have to be that way. Whereas music actually was always there. Um, and so to think of ending up as an artist who is kind of um, often focusing on Jewish themes to some degree is, yeah, it both seems very predestined and is not something that I would have predicted or um, kind of identified as at a younger age. Even though looking back, I, can, I was actually making art about Jewish themes in, way back in high school as well. Um, but I'm still both surprised and like, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, I so identify with that experience of kind of, I was the religious freak in my family for a while, and I was, you know, the one looking <laughs> around the synagogue and being like, do you even believe what you're saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, looking for more, and also in school, um, any chance I had, I was doing papers on, like, the Jewish twist on this, or the Jewish female twist on that. Right. Um, so to transition, I guess, to your, your Girls in Trouble work, I thought um, it was kind of a stroke of brilliance that this came out of actually your master's thesis. Thanks to Rabbi Bert Vazatsky who suggested it. <laughs> yeah, I'm still tremendously grateful to him, both for saving me from having to write an actual thesis <laughs> and for starting this project that's become such a big part of my artistic life and my daily experience. Yeah, I was wondering, um, could you talk a little bit about like what goes into writing a song? Like, What does your research look like? Because maybe it's a story you've heard a, a hundred times, but you're finding this really fresh take on it. I tend to write these songs, well, occasionally one will come out almost fully formed. Although even with this kind of project, even fully formed is is kind of maybe an inaccurate description because the Midrashim and, and whatever, you know, Talmud sources and Torah sources and feminist commentaries that I've been reading for, I guess, like uh, 13 years at this point are all always floating in my mind. <laughs> and so I think, you know, it's um, it's very different from starting something from scratch, especially now that the project has so much momentum in my mind. I kind of generally have about maybe like eight potential characters that I'm like thinking about, and it might take two years to actually start working on the song. Um, so I tend to both do a lot of wide-ranging research and not try to be exhaustive um, I think that would be counter counterproductive for me. So I kind of cast around and I look in, I have a library of, you know, kind of holy books in Hebrew and Aramaic and then feminist um, commentaries and other kind of scholarly commentaries. So 
if I'm really starting to work on a song, I'll generally take them down and kind of glance through everything I can find. And then I'll often look in um, Christian and Muslim traditions on a pr- fairly surface level usually. And, and if something catches my eye, then I'll go deep into it. Like for the song about um, Potiphar's wife on our second album, I found that there's actually a stronger tradition of imagining her in the Muslim uh, canon. And so I, I started reading these translations of Sufi poems about her. Um, and some of the legends about her actually overlap in Midrash and in the Islamic texts. And so that became a, a major source of, um, of imagery for, for that one song. Um, so yeah, it's usually kind of this organic process of research. And then simultaneously on the artistic level, there's a correspondingly messy process of work of kind of thinking of which genre I want to write the song in because they, the genres vary. Some of them are very folky and some of them are more poppy and some are more rock. Um, so I'll, I'll often get a phrase in my head and try it in a bunch of different ways. I'll try it on violin and I'll try it on guitar. The Hagar song started out on guitar and then um, one day during soundcheck I realized that I could actually do it on violin. So just a lot of like casting about trial and error. And then the other level of it is that I'm I'm looking for a place where I can relate on some level, either personally or through um, a contemporary analogy to the emotional essence of the story. And if I feel like I can't find that, um, then I won't write it. Like Lot's Daughters, I can't, I'm like, it's too, it's so incredibly dark <laughs> that I just... I fortunately can't totally relate to it. Um, whereas other songs like um, The Daughter of Yiftah, who, according to some interpretations, gets sacrificed by her father, I kind of read that and I, I see her as a character who she kind of decides to go along with it in the story. And, and, and that makes a lot of sense to me in terms of this kind of teenage blind faith. Like she basically says, you made a vow to God, and now we have to go through with this. And it's actually not that she's utterly helpless because she actually goes away for two months and then comes back. And I've always thought if you can go away for two months, if you're old enough to do that, you're old enough to not come back. And so I relate, I think, a little less to less to the, the act of violence in the story and more to this kind of powerful teenage conviction of black and white faith. Um, and I think that you can look around and see analogs in a lot of um, religious and non-religious situations around us. So so whether it's something I can personally relate to from experience or something that I just feel like is contemporarily relatable, that's that's kind of the, um, the crux of where I begin the more internal writing process. And the, the research feeds that and the different interpretations kind of help me help me find that. And if I can't, then I'll just let that character go for a while.
Could you uh, describe your process with the Hagar song? Um, I'm sure some of our listeners like don't know the story, so kind of like weaving or telling the story and the points in the story that maybe you connected to. Yeah, well, um, we read this on Rosh Hashanah every year, and um, Abraham and Sarah have been married, and Sarah has this handmaiden, handmaid, Hagar, and Sarah is unable to get pregnant, and so she gets this idea that if Hagar becomes Abraham's concubine, um, then Sarah says, perhaps she will become pregnant and I will be built up through her. So it's kind of a brilliant idea, like surrogacy, basically. Um, but what actually happened, and it's like the story is so amazingly written. So the ne- it all happens very quickly. But So the next thing that happens is that Hagar becomes pregnant immediately. And then it says her mistress is lessened in her eyes. Um, so she thinks less of Sarah. And the, the rabbis interpret that as saying, well, if I got pregnant right away, there must be something wrong with her spiritually that prevented that. And then Sarah's like, that was not what I intended <laughs> and gets really mad and um, sends Hagar out to the wilderness. And um, Abraham is upset by this, but um, God tells Abraham to listen to Sarah's voice. So then Hagar comes back and she has Ishmael. And eventually Sarah gets pregnant um, very late in her life and has Isaac and um, sees Ishmael doing, Sarah sees Ishmael playing with Isaac in a way that she doesn't approve of. It's not clear what it is. And she casts them out again. And this time it's um, a little more serious. And so um, Abraham kind of sadly sends them out into the desert with, you know, a skin of water. And when it runs out, um, there's this very dire moment when it really looks like they're both going to die of thirst in the desert. And Hagar sends um, her son Ishmael to sit a boat an arrow length away under a different tree because um, it seems that she can't handle seeing him die, watching him die. And that was the moment that I chose to write about, even though the next moment everything starts looking up because an angel comes and says, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. And not only that, but Ishmael will become the father of multitudes and a great hunter and um, archer. Um, but I think uh, in terms of just kind of artistically, the, the moment of greatest um, pathos <laughs> and intensity the contemporary um, kind of analog that felt very resonant to me actually was just the sense of um, being with someone you love when they're suffering, which is something that happens to everyone. I mean, it doesn't have to be your son or even a family member. Um, that like profound challenge was what really felt totally contemporary with me, even though this story is so such an extreme and ancient version of that. So that was the moment that I that I went into, um, and uh, that's where the song came from. Um, for, the, uh, for the song about Hagar that the museum uh, commissioned, Hagar is at this interesting intersection, talk about in between, between um, Islam and Judaism, in a certain way, and uh, Hagar today is slightly politicized. Um, and you know, the question of who has agency and who has the right to have blessings in the land and so forth. Um, were you um, 
concerned uh, or uh, excited about some of those political contemporary resonances when you were thinking about writing the song, or were you more focused on, as you were saying, just going back and trying to understand um, and sympathize with her as a character from, from the Bible? I consciously didn't want to read it as a political story because um, although although I feel like we're all um, we all have a responsibility to be engaged with what's happening politically right now. I just felt like that would be reductive for me. And I would rather like go to a meeting and talk about political issues and then think about the Hagar story on the um, on the level that it kind of resonated with me the most, um, which just it could have been politically, but it didn't happen to be in this case. I think there is something political also in just kind of going into the imagined experience of this character from 100% my imagination of her perspective um, in this in this moment. And uh, like it does add, I hope, one little sliver of perspective that um, can become part of part of a perspective on the character that's also tremendously filled out by the political take on it. So I used to be obsessed with the stories of Jewish women, but through the lens of Renaissance art, mm. um, spent a lot of time in, um, in Florence. I did a mm. semester abroad. Um, and, you know, what there is to see is Catholic mm. in, in Italy. And yet I would be, I would see, wait, that's Judith. And like, oh, that's Esther over there. And so these are kind of like my girls like, yeah. in this new landscape of, yeah. um, of incredible stories uh, in their own right. But, um, right, I, I started to think the pictures I saw of Judith and Esther and Jael in particular were, you know, quite violent. <laughs> They're, uh, you know, Judith, the story of her, she, she saves her people, you know, total super heroine style um, by cutting off the head of Holofernes. Right. And Jael drives a tent peg through <laughs> the head of, you know, another bad guy. Cicera, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I started to think, is there, I mean, certainly the, these were done from a Christian perspective, but is there something qualitatively different about like the Jewish kind of heroine, like Old Testament women? Is there some quality that speaks to you in their stories? I don't think I know enough about the women of other traditions sure. to know. Yeah. I think I wonder that. Yeah. Um, and people often ask me when I, you know, invite questions, aren't you so angry? <laughs> it's usually women of a certain generation. Like, aren't you so angry that um, about the mistreatment of women in these texts and how can you handle the anger? And like, I'm really not angry. I think I'm, you know, I'm lucky to grow up in a world where I wasn't experiencing that myself. So I can kind of look at these stories in a different way. And what I see is actually a lot of instances of women being kind of ignored or reproved or punished and then asserting themselves in the story itself. And then the man who was doing the punishing um, or chastising actually saying, oh, you're right. That happens in the story of Tamar in Genesis. It happens in Hannah in the book of Samuel. And there are a bunch of other times. Um, they're pretty powerful, not even from a later apologetica lens, but um, in the stories themselves. And I, I'm, I'm amazed by it. And I do think that it's something that we don't even really acknowledge that much in our culture. I think that, I don't know why, I don't know if it's, I think there's more kind of entrenched sexism in the actual laws than in the stories themselves, actually. Um, and I don't know how much of it is also from seeing these texts through a Christian lens, which we do necessarily, I think, um, if we're raised in mainstream America. But, yeah, there are 
crazy. <laughs> and, and it's just endless material that I couldn't have come up with myself, like the, the courage and uh, violence in like, like young, pretty women <laughs> doing these crazy things. Um, you grew up at a time um, where women were rabbis mm-hmm. uh, starting in the 70s, where there was all this feminist scholarship and feminist Jewish scholarship. So um, you, in a way, are um, swimming in uh, interpretive and political possibilities that weren't possible a generation ago. Mm-hmm. That's totally true. I mean, I think that because I, I was lucky to not need to have that anger because I didn't... I think also growing up in a non-religious context where religion... Um, the religion that I experienced was very egalitarian, and so I don't associate Judaism with the oppression of women, which a lot of people, I think even today, depending on the community that they grow up in, associate it. And so if that's how the texts have been interpreted to you from childhood on, then you have just a very different perspective on it. You talked about your interest in working um, in education with uh, fringe Jewish communities. And in this context, it was uh, like an in- you worked with a community of interfaith families, particularly. Could you describe that experience? I think I, I've always felt most comfortable in some sort of <laughs> fringe relationship to the mainstream, probably in every aspect of my life. Um, and certainly Jewishly, because I didn't grow up in this kind of intense Jewish community. So I, I think that it really makes me feel like I can have all, draw on all of my experiences when I'm working with families or students who um, have kind of one foot in Judaism and one foot somewhere else, wherever that may be. And, and the other thing is that I really, I really am drawn to meaningfulness and kind of personal meaningfulness in Jewish education. Um, Working with a a community of interfaith families or with an individual interfaith family or a family that is Jewish on both sides, but one side had a really traumatic Jewish upbringing. So just families that have consciously come to the idea of being involved in their own Judaism, um, I feel like uh, are really in a special place because they're looking for deep meaning and engagement and um and I really just love working with someone who's in that in that state of openness and skepticism both um because I think that's kind of the ideal mind for Torah study (laughs) there does seem to be some kind of mystery that is found and or created uh in the margins or in the fringe relationships as you talk about Uh, and I wonder whether that idea of mystery is something that compels you? Do you use that language in any way? I think that the experience of the lived moment is generally pretty mysterious. I think that all the possibilities of the future and all the possibilities of ways of interpreting the past um, and all of the, um, I've always been struck by all of the levels of experience from, you know, physical sensations and intellectual thoughts and spiritual ideas and experiences that are just happening simultaneously every second I think there's so much mystery there and then if you add actual kind of the external narrative of family conflict or falling in and out of love or illness or great joy and beauty around you um, it's just kind of a total mystery (laughs) and so I think that in a lot of ways that's the space that I try to go into and create 
Um, and it's, it's pretty wild. It's fun. <laughs> Thank you, Alicia Joe. My pleasure. Thanks for coming. Thank you both. So I. Uh,